All right. Grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to read there Genesis chapter 2 in just a minute. Read in verse 21 in a minute. Let me give a little introduction before we go. Um, I'm really been surprised. I thought we we're going to scoot right through Genesis and the creation account. And every time I'm trying to scoot through it, I keep feeling like the Lord saying, "Now back up a little bit. I want you to talk about something else." And I want to talk about something today that I'm going to I'm going to warn you in advance, or I'm going to say this, not warn you in advance. I'm going to give a disclaimer in advance. And here's the disclaimer: I will never apologize for teaching God's word honestly. And I'm going to do my best today to teach God's word honestly. Um, But the topic we're going to look at today, teaching God's word honestly, um, conflicts with almost everything you know about the topic we're going to deal with from the society we live in today. And because we're going to talk about marriage and we're going to talk about order in marriage, created order, husbands and wives. We're going to function. We're going to focus on. And it's a it's a topic that um, that could cause some dissonance in how we've been trained by our society and how God's word promotes things. But I think, I'm going to promise you this, especially you gals, if you will hang on till the end, you will see God loves all of us equally. And it is, God just has some order created for the betterment of the family and the blessing of the world. Okay? And so we'll say that to start with. So um, we're going to look at today this idea of marriage. Now I understand that everybody's married. Um... But most people will be married at some point, and, um, and it's something that affects us. I, can't, I can say this, that in the years of pastoral ministry I've had, the number one thing people have come to talk to me about is marital issues. And so I think maybe this is an area we really got to zone in on and figure out what God have to say, because it's the area that we have the most conflict in in our everyday lives. So look at Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 21. And we're going to read till verse 24. It's just going to be a springboard we're going to use to jump off into um, this topic. Verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We'll stop right there. Now, this text deals, as we just looked at, with men and women being made for one another. Isn't that good to know? That sometimes we look at each other like, you know, what's the book, you know, one's from Mars, one's from Venus. But God, in the creation account, shows us something that we ought to just feel great comfort in. He says that man and woman were made from one another. He says that he took a rib from Adam and he formed a woman for Adam. And if you understand the story that we looked at last week, he had first had Adam look at all the animals. And remember what it said? And there was not a suitable helper found for Adam. And so God says, I will create a suitable helper for Adam. And so he creates this team to be together, being joined together, who are two individual people who become one flesh. And that idea, that one flesh idea, is the idea of marriage. The idea of a man and a woman joining together and becoming one. Where they were two distinct 
people that marriage, and I think here's one of the fallacies we have, we see in our culture today, we don't realize that when man and woman come together in marriage, they are not two distinct people anymore. There are individual, there is individualness, and I would never say that's not true, and God would never say that's not true, but the two, according to scripture here, become one. That we become one brand new existence. Not just physical, and we talked about that last week, but also emotional and spiritual and relational. And we find that in Scripture, God takes this unit that is created that he calls marriage, and he uses it as a foundation for all of society. He uses it as a foundation to show how he's going to develop society. As a matter of fact, he says, those family units, he gave a real important job in Genesis chapter 1 to those family units. He said, come together and do what? Do you remember? They had a job. Be, I heard it, be fruitful and multiply. And he said, takes those families, he brings those individuals together into one new unit, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, and he uses that new creation of this thing called marriage to then be the building block upon which he builds all of society. Now, Genesis um, introduces this topic to us. It shows the creation of it. It gives a little bit of an explanation about it, but it kind of stops right there. And if we want to understand it more fully, we've got to look elsewhere in the Scripture. So what I want us to do is, I said it's going to be a springboard. We're taking it as a springboard, and we're going to jump into the topic of, of this created order that he introduces in Genesis. So take your Bible, flip to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, and we are going to look in some more detail at the relationship between man and woman in marriage. And what we're going to find in this text, Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 22, What we're going to find in this text is that God gives us the basic structure of a biblical marriage. Um, And the reason it's so important to look at that is as we look at God's basic structure, we'll understand what God's intention is um, for marriage. But understand when I say it's a basic structure, he doesn't any way try to spell out exactly what individual marriages should look like. Because people have kind of misunderstood this stuff and they say, well, this means all women should stay in the home. That's not what it says. It never says that. This means that all women should just raise babies and say, it doesn't say that at all. It gives a basic structure in the marriage for how things should operate um, so that there is peace and harmony in the home. So look at Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 22 down to verse 33. This is what it says. It says, wives... Be subject to your own husbands. That's why I say, ladies, hang on, because you're going to figure out what this means. Um, it's, it's not bad. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also... 
excuse me, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, we find that section of scripture in the second half of the book of Ephesians. And if you were to take the book of Ephesians and read it, you would see it's kind of broke um, from chapter 1, 2, and 3 is one section, kind of talking about spiritual things. And, and then it becomes practical in chapter 4 and talks about the working out of these spiritual things in our everyday lives. And chapter 5, verse 1, kind of gives a, a summation of what he's saying in chapter 4, 5, and, and on of kind of what he's trying to accomplish here. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, this is the practical application. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved. And he's saying, look, at here's the practical way of living this out. What you're practically trying to do is you're practically trying to imitate God. And he explains here about how we live out our Christian lives. And as he's talking through these chapters about living out our Christian lives, he comes to the topic of marriage. And what he does for us so we can understand is he draws a comparison between how husbands and wives should relate together and how Christ and his church should relate together. And it's, it's kind of interesting because he, he vacillates or he bounces back and forth. He uses marriage to describe the church, then he uses church to describe uh, marriage. And he kind of switches back and forth through this whole section that we just read. And he uses this analogy as, as we're looking at it to live out our practical lives, this analogy of the Christ and the church and to see how they interact to help us understand how we're to interact. So he uses this analogy of Christ and the church to help Christians understand how marriage should be lived out. And in particular, he talks about in the first couple verses how husbands and wives are to function within the marriage unit. And in so doing, he gives us a framework that we can build upon. Now, the first thing he addresses is wives. And wives, look at verse, all of us, look at verse chapter 22, or verse 22 together, and it says this. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as the Lord. Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. Now, let me start with a warning for all of us. We need to be careful when we look at this. Because it deals with the divine order of marriage, of the marriage relationship. And it uses this word here, submit, or some of your translations say, be subject to, to describe it. And I knew when I felt the Lord say, I want you to deal with this, saying, God, you're having me just dig into a hornet's nest. Because it's going to cause all kinds of people to get angry. It's going to cause people to get up and walk out. It will, before you even get into it. Which it has. (laughs) Because we look at this verse and we say... um, Man, this, I don't like this idea. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And the reason that happens, that we're worried about that, and the reason it can be a hornet's nest is because I think we don't really understand this concept of submission, what he's saying here. And we look at submission as weakness or oppression. That if you're going to, be, if you're going to submit, it means that you are oppressed. And that's not at all the intention here. Now, I do believe that this text has been used a lot, of, a lot of times in a sinful, or at least in a misinformed manner over the ages by men to say to women or to wives, um, you know what? The Bible says that you're to be my servant. The Bible says, submit to me, I am your Lord. And they demand slave-like behavior from your wives. And that's wrong. That's not what it's teaching. What I want us to accomplish today and understand today from this teaching is that our marriages 
if we operate according to the plan that we're going to unfold today, that is God's divine design, it will result in marriages that are complete and happy and blessed. And isn't that what we really want for our marriages? Complete, happy, and blessed marriages. So Paul writes this. Wives, let's figure it out. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. First of all, I want you to notice what it, says, what it does not say. It does not say women be subject to men. Does it say that? It's not talking about society right now. I'm not saying the Bible is in other places deal with other topics on this, but for this teaching, it is talking about marriage. And it does not say women be subject to men. This is an instruction for the proper function within the scriptures. And just a few verses over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it teaches that all Christians are to submit in love to one another. That that's a concept of Christianity. That if you want to understand what Christianity is, Christianity is saying, I choose to submit my will to other people. That's what Jesus did when he came. Jesus has said he emptied himself of all of his godness and he came to earth and he subjected himself to life in, uh, on this world. And the scriptures teach us that there's this mutual um, submission that happens through love to one another. See, Christianity isn't designed to be some male-dominated society where women are to submit and be like slaves even though that's what some people have tried to teach. There are no dictators in God's kingdom. There aren't any. That makes sense? Scripture doesn't say women submit. It says wives submit or wives be subject. It's about divine order that God has created to bring peace and well-being into the marriage relationship. And we must understand that submission here does not mean inequality. It does not mean spiritual inequality. It does not mean that one sex is greater than the other. Both sexes, according to Scripture, are equal. They're equal spiritually. They're equal in other ways. Um, Both bear the image of God. We looked at that last week, didn't we? Didn't we look at the text that said, I made man and woman in my image. He specifically said it that way. They both bear the image of God and are equal in their standing and their spiritual giftings before the Lord. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul makes this very clear in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he says, There is rather, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. There is no superiority or inferiority in the kingdom. It's simply different roles. So then what does it mean for wives to be subject to their husbands? It is referring to the design that God has given for marriage to properly function. Christian marriage, first of all, is meant to be a visible expression by which the world may see the reality of God and his love. That's what this text in Ephesians is talking about. It's intertwining how the husband and wife work and the bride of Christ and, and Christ. And it's trying to say that this marriage illustrates the relationship that the church has to Jesus. And marriage, Christian marriage, is meant to be a visible expression that the world can look at and say, I see something different about this marriage. It functions differently. And that Jesus of God created is supposed to be an image, a living metaphor for what it looks like between the relationship between Christ and his church. As people view a Christian marriage, they are to see how Christ loves the church that's how the husband's to love his wife, and how the church submits to Christ's headship. And that's how the wife submits in the situation that they're in. Can we choose to rebel in our relationship as believers to God? Of course we can. 
And so he's trying to show a relationship where there's a head and there's a following and there's a, a love from the head and a following from the, from the body. And he's saying, listen, it's like Christ in the church. And if you live this way, it reveals Christ and the church to the, for the, to the world. And for this to be expressed properly, God has given husbands and wives this basic framework upon which to build their marriage. The frame consists of a wife living a life of honoring and following the leadership the spiritual leadership of the husband who leads the wife like Christ led the church in love as a servant leader. Submission means looking to the husband as the head authority of the marriage union. And isn't an issue, here it is, it isn't an issue of importance. It isn't an issue of intelligence. It isn't an issue of giftedness. It is an issue of role and function. That's what it's designed to be. Maybe we can best understand it like this. Because we don't think of Christ in the church maybe the way we ought to. And we don't think for, for sure in our cult, culture about men and women functioning in these roles. But we do think of this. Most of you work for a company. And in the company you work for, in most companies there's a president and there's a vice president. And I think that's maybe the best illustration. If the Apostle Paul was writing this today, I think he'd probably use that analogy for us to understand. He'd say it's a lot like a company with a president and a vice president. Both the vice president and the president are valuable, aren't they? Incredibly valuable. If the vice president, now let's take politics out of it, where we just have to have the person, okay? But in a company that's designed to make money, do they give jobs to people just because they feel they ought to give them jobs? We got money to throw away. No. They employ people, now sometimes they might make that mistake, but if they're going to be a viable, successful company, they employ people who benefit the company, correct? And so if you have a president and a vice president, they're both incredibly valuable because they're generally the highest paid people in the company. And so you've got a president and a vice president. They're both incredibly valuable. They both have great responsibility. If the vice president didn't have great responsibility, we wouldn't pay the person to do the job. We would just say, we don't need that position, and we'd eliminate it. But the company understands it needs a vice president in order to function properly because the president has certain roles, the vice president has certain roles, and they function together. And a wise president of a company, if he's going to be wise and smart and run his company well, will often and always look to the vice president and say, what do you think about this? And they'll together as a team function for the betterment of the company and the role of the company. But understand this about that that dynamic. The role of the president in that company is to be the final authority to take the ultimate responsibility for the care of the organization. And, and, and the old saying is this, to, to, have the, to wear a shirt that says this, the buck stops here. That's really the role of the president. You know, it, it, there's an old saying, it's no fun at the top. It's not for the president. Because everything that goes wrong, no matter who's screwed up, they blame him. The buck stops here. Because ultimately he's responsible. That's the role of the president and the vice president. And wives being subject to their husband is like this. It's about a chain of command. There must always be one leader in an organization who is ultimately responsible and those around that leader are to support and help that leader to lead. Otherwise, you have chaos. And wives, in marriage, God calls you to that support role. And it's an incredibly important, necessary role for the family to function properly. It's about this chain of command. Now, who's ever read C.S. Lewis? Ever, anybody who's read uh, Mere Christianity, if you've not read Mere Christianity, like a couple hands in one place, you need to get the book Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis was one of the great thinkers, one of the great Christian thinkers of, of the last, you know, 100 years. 
and a brilliant man, wrote all kinds of novels. You guys know The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, all those things, The Chronicles of Narnia, um, screw tape letters. But one of the things that I love about C.S. Lewis is his book, Mere Christianity. And in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis deals with this topic, and he deals with it in a way, interestingly, he wrote this when, about, about marriage when he, he had never been married yet. He was married sometimes later. He was married much later in his life. And he wrote about marriage as a man who had never been married, and he hits the nail on the head when it comes to this issue. And I think one of the reasons he hit the nail on the head is he never had the complication of having to be married and figure out how it's going to work out. He can just be honest to Scripture and say, here's how it works. And this is, he points out this in, this in this thing. And I said, man, you know, when I read this years ago, I said, this guy gets it. He wrote this about, about this chain of command. He says, the need for some head follows from the idea that marriage, get this, is permanent. Now, is God, what's God's plan for marriage? One man, one woman, united till death do us part. Is that God's plan? Matter of fact, scripture says, what God has joined together, let what? No man separate. You know, and he uses divorce as a last resort. And he appeals to it and said, well, divorce was given because of what? The hardness of your hearts. He said, because you're not living right, I've allowed this under certain ways and certain circumstances. But C.S. Lewis understands this and he goes, the need for head, for a head, follows from the idea that marriage is permanent. He says, of course, as long as the husband and the wife are agreed, no question of a head need arise. Isn't that interesting? He said, as long as you're not disagreeing, there is no need for a head to arise. And we may hope that this will be the normal state of affair in a Christian marriage. But when there is real disagreement, what is to happen? Talk it over? Of course. But I'm assuming that they have done that and still failed to reach agreement. What do they do next? They cannot decide by a majority vote. For in the council of two, there can be no majority. Surely only one or other of two things can happen. Get this. Either they must separate and go their own ways, or else one or the other of them must have a casting vote. If marriage is permanent, one or other party must, in the last resort, have the power of deciding the family policy. You cannot have a permanent association without a constitution. The guy who was never married, but he gets it. He says, look it, if this marriage is going to last forever, there's going to be a time where there's conflict. Anybody ever had conflict in their marriage? I know some of you never have. Don't let Suzanne hear this. We have had conflict in our marriage. You know, not a lot, but we've had conflict in our marriage. Any two people who get married are going to have conflict. And... C.S. Lewis notes, and he, I think he's, he's brilliant in seeing this, the reason for this chain of command is that God wants marriages to last. He wants them to be permanent. And for that to happen, there must be a way of making decisions when people disagree. And God said, I'm going to make a way for this to happen. And he sets a framework in place. And he deals with it by saying this framework, saying, husbands, you will ultimately have the final responsibility of making the decisions to keeping your marriage going in the right direction. That I, I give you the responsibility of doing that, and I give you wives the responsibility of following that leadership, even if at times you don't agree, for the sake of the union. Does that make sense? So the union will succeed, because otherwise what happens is there's a breaking of the union. And it, it, you know what we call today? Irreconcilable differences. 
That's what we call it. Irreconcilable differences. Why are you getting divorced? Irreconcilable differences. Was it God, when, you, when somebody stood at this altar and they made a vow to get married, that they say, we'll stay together for till death do us part, unless we have irreconcilable differences. They don't say that. They say it's permanent. And C.S. Lewis says, you know what? For that to happen, there must be a chain of command. There must be a time when there's great disagreement where one party chooses to make, says, I will own the responsibility, and the other party says, and I will choose to follow the decision made in that situation. And listen, wives, there's great comfort in that. Now, I don't say that to meaning condescendingly, saying that somehow wives are weaker or less capable. I don't believe that for a second, because I believe the ultimate thing is we don't have disagreement. We live in harmony. And then, as as Lewis said, there will be no opportunity where it has to have a, a deciding vote. You know what? And let me, let me share something beyond that. I not only think that, you're not, that women aren't second rate, I think in so many ways, and this is God's plan, women do so many things that men can't. I, I've been married for 21 years. I never cease to be amazed at what Suzanne can do that I can't. How can she do five things at one time? I'm dead serious. I, I, I try to do one thing at one time, and sometimes I'm not very good at that. She can literally have five different things going at one time and do them all well. I don't understand it. There's a compassion that she has for, for raising our kids and an insight into understanding how they function that I don't have. That she'll have to say, listen, dummy, you're not getting us. She doesn't say that. But that's really what she should be saying. You don't, you don't, you're not hearing. You know? You're not understanding what they're saying. And I'll go, really? Is that what they're saying? <laughs> I just thought they're being crabby. You know? We blend together to make this, this union that's beautiful. And so it's not a, a comment here that's saying women are less valuable, less important. It's a matter of a chain of command. Women, you are equally valuable. But the ultimate responsibility before God, he's the one who made this rule, lies on the husband. It's, it's the order that God has established. Now before we move on to men, which won't take as much time with men because we're talking about a lot of it now, I think we need to address this situation. What about the situation in marriage, where a husband isn't a Christian, or simply refuses to lead, or is simply a difficult man. Now, ladies, don't respond, but are some men difficult? Guys, we'll say, yeah. Some men are difficult, okay? Some women are difficult. So what about a situation where, that's true, we all are. It's not, it's not a male or female thing. It's a human thing. So what about a situation where either the husband does not lead, he's not a Christian, or he's just a difficult person. How does a wife choose to submit in that situation? Well, I think here's the way we have to understand it. Understand, first of all, that as the Apostle Paul writes this, you know, based on Genesis, um, the intention was that this would be carried out between two Christian people. The intention was that this is designed for, for a husband and wife who both love Jesus and are serving him together, but then it becomes really complicated and difficult when that is not the case. So I'd say this, there's no easy answer, but I think there's a, a best answer. And the best answer, I think, is this. What do you do? You follow when you can, but a wife must never follow her husband into sin. I think that's the best answer. You follow as you can or when you can, but a wife never follows a husband into sin. See, because ultimately Christ alone is the supreme authority in anybody's life. Husband, wife, doesn't matter. Christ alone is the supreme authority over a husband, over a wife. And a wife must do her best to honor her husband as head, 
and to, to model a godly, godly character and to love her husband if he's not saved, try to lead him to Christ. But the line is drawn when submission to a husband would dishonor one's relationship with Christ. That's where the line is drawn. You say, I can follow you, but I can't do that because that dishonors my God. And I can't do that. So let's wrap the wife up. The wife's role, according to Scripture here, is to submit to her husband's leadership in a way that is honoring to Christ. Is that what it says in a nutshell? Amen. Let's look at husbands really quick. Husbands, what is the role that a husband has in God's created order in marriage? We've said it already. It's that the husband should be the head or the leader. And what's that look like? Look at verse, at verse 25. Because it's not what we think a lot of times. This is what it looks like to be the, hus- the head, the leader. Husbands, as a leader, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. You want to know what it means to be the head? What it means to be the head is that you're to love your wife. I got a news flash for you. Maybe you young guys are thinking about getting married and say, someday I'm going to be the ruler. <laughs> Being the head isn't fun or easy. Being the head isn't fun or easy. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And the question is, how did Jesus love his church? He died for his church. He gave everything for his church. And that's the same type of self-sacrificing love that a husband is to express toward his wives. Husbands, it's all about giving yourself up for her putting her needs in front of yours. Being the leader doesn't mean that you do things for yourself. It means exactly the opposite. It means you care for everyone else around you, starting with your wife. And I got to tell you, I believe that if as husbands, we would seriously take this instruction to heart, there would never be a problem with a wife willingly following the lead of her husband as the head of the home. If he had his, his heart to say, my leadership involves giving of myself to see my wife advance. Now the Apostle Paul even takes that little, makes it a little clearer, takes it a little farther. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, so that he might, this is how he does it, he gave himself up for her, he, he dies for her, so that for the church and for a husband for a wife, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You know what? Jesus saw to it that the church would become glorious and beautiful. That's what it's saying there, isn't it? He saw that she become this glorious, without spot or wrinkle, bride of Christ. He's seen vested into her so that the church would become all she could be. Jesus gave himself for the church so that he could present, be the presentable bride of Christ and he, so that he wants the church to become all she can be, right? Isn't that what it just said? Husbands, that's what we're to do for our wives. We are to lead them to become all they can be in their lives. That's really what it's saying here. Jesus led the church to become the glorious bride of Christ without spot or wrinkle. He invested in her. He washed her. He cared for her, for the church. So the church will become all it can be. It can rise up in the glory it was intended to have from creation. And husband, that's what we are supposed to do for our wives. But this is my observation. And tell me if I'm correct. I think this rarely happens. Mostly, wives invest themselves into their husbands so the husband can be all he's supposed to be. 
Most of the situations start like this. They get married, they're young, husband's going to college, wife quits her career, quits her education, works to put her husband through school, then they get out of school, he's got to get a job, so the wife submits to what the husband is doing, follows him where he's going because he's now the breadwinner, and everything kind of becomes around following the husband, becoming what the husband is going to become, and she's investing into that. And I'm not saying that's bad for a second, except after about 25 years. When the wife one day gets up out of bed, she looks in the mirror. She's got a few wrinkles she didn't have before. She realizes she's getting old, got a few gray hairs. And she looks at it and she says, for 25 years, I've been doing everything for him. I want out. It happens every single day. They say, what's in this thing for me? I've been given to you and to you forever and ever and ever and ever. Now the kids are grown 25 years and they're leaving the nest. And she looks at him and says, what have you done for me lately? It's all been about you. And she says, I want out. And she walks out the door. It happens every single day, doesn't it? Isn't that really the reason that so many marriages end at that stage of life? If you really ask the wife, because it's, it's interesting to me, at least in my experience, and I don't know what statistics say, but in my experience, at that stage of life, it's more often that the wife walks out the door than the husband walks out the door. She says, I've had enough. It's because she's been investing in him and he's not been investing in her. Husbands, our job is to lead our wives to fulfill their divine destiny. It's to fulfill their divine dreams. We need to encourage them to use their gifts for God, not all be about us. We need to invest in their development, invest in their educations, make it possible so that now they've given a lot to you so you can become, now you give a lot to them so they can become. That's what leadership is all about. Help them become glorious as women of God. That's what a leader does. That's why I said hang on to the end. Because... If this is taken as one little lump, this is the first part, women get up and they walk out the door and they say, this isn't for me. Some Neanderthal is going to say that, that my job is to, his job is to beat his chest and say, mm, woman, submit. And unfortunately, the church world has done that a lot. But that's not the point. The point is God says there's leaders. He puts a husband as the head. And he gives them the responsibility to say, make sure everybody under your leadership is becoming what they're supposed to be because that's what Jesus did for the church. Help them to thrive. Help them to develop. Put yourself in second place so that they can become the person they're supposed to become. That's what it means to be the head. And wives, you get the joy of supporting that, of saying, I want to help him to succeed. I want to help him to become that leader because if he becomes that leader, my, our relationship will be better and our children's relationship will be better and we'll be, a, we'll be this representation before the world where they'll look and they'll say, look at that's just like Jesus and his church. Look at how they work together. Look at how, how the, the one who's following brings, brings honor and glory to the leader and the head is blessing the one who's following. It's a, it's a, it's a living metaphor to say this is what it's like to be a a child of God. That's why God created it this way. He created it to be a visible representation and he created it so it was a system that could actually last. Because if we don't have this order, we have what we have in our society. And what do we have in our society? Over one half of our marriages end in divorce. I'm not saying that meanly because I know a lot of you in here have experienced the pain of divorce. I don't say that for a second with any kind of arrogance or kind of said, I just got really lucky. You know, I got lucky God spoke to me one day walking into a church when that gal was 15 years old, kneeling at an altar, praying, and I walked out the back door. I turned around, and the Spirit of the Lord said, that's who you're supposed to marry. It was that clear. It wasn't because I made a great decision. It's because God knew I'd make a bad choice. 
And he said, I got a, I got a plan for you, Mark, and you're going to mess it up, so you need to hook up with her because she's going to help you. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to that. So I don't have one ounce of arrogance saying that, oh, somehow, you know, your marriage has lasted 21 years. By the grace of God, it's been 21 wonderful years. So there's no arrogance. But I'll say this. After 21 years, as we've lived this order, and we have lived this order, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Because ultimately, I know, you know what, it's not about Mark. It's about me making sure that the rest of the people around me become the glorious, glorious, all they can be children of God. It's about Suzanne saying, how do I help Mark accomplish that? And we're just co-equals. We walk side by side. Not of arrogance, side by side. I'm not higher, side by side. But then when it comes to the point where we just can't decide, I say, okay, I own a responsibility. This is what we're going to do. Give me your input. But ultimately, buck stops here. This is what we're going to do. I, t- I own responsibility. Blame me when it's done. That's what God is saying here. That's not some Neanderthal chest-beating concept, is it? It's not what it is at all. It's grace. It's love. It's God's loves us so much he knew that we would need to have some order for, it to be, to, for marriage to survive. And if we live God's way, we will have the blessing that God wants. In this balance, we will have marriages that are complete and happy and fulfilling and permanent and they'll reveal reveal Jesus to the world. Amen?